Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We're glad you've made Perimeter part of your holiday journey. This week's Advent sermon comes from lead teacher Jeff Norris. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. You, you know, the Bible is full of genealogies, especially the Old Testament, where we get to those passages, and what do we do? What do I do? I won't even put this on you. We either skip entirely, or we go, okay, now, now I'm backtracking when it gets to something past the genealogy. So when we get to Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 16, we typically read the first verse that, you know, starts like this, verse one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and you go, okay, cool. You blah, blah, blah. Okay, verse 18, now Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, and then you keep reading. And that's totally understandable. I'm not gonna shame you for that because we all do it. And, and we think, understandably again, we think that there's not much there to glean. But that's actually not true. In fact, for a Jewish reader, which Matthew wrote this gospel account of Jesus, he, he wrote it to a Jewish audience. And to a Jewish reader, they would have been quite arrested. They would have been quite enthralled with this genealogy. And here's why. Uh, in that day and time, your lineage was everything. Now, it's not so much today in the modern Western world we typically ask one another questions when we first meet someone. Uh, you know, we may say where you're from. We're not asking lineage, though. If you say where you're from and someone starts saying, well, my fifth great-grandfather was yada, 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 and then you start, you go, what? Dude, I just wanted to know, where, like, where'd you grow up? You know, or we may ask, what do you do? What do you do for a living? But back then, back then, it may not have been in a social setting all the time that would say, hey, walk through your lineage with me, but it was something very important such that it was a topic of conversation and it was a, a status thing in society. So after the, uh, the Jews were taken into Babylonian captivity, the Israelites were taken into Babylonian captivity, when they came back from being in ca captivity for 70 years, one of the things they were most anxious about was getting back to the temple that was now lying in ruins that the Babylonians had destroyed, not just to see how bad was it, but to find the records of the genealogies. Because if those had been destroyed, then people would then begin to panic because their land would be at stake. If you couldn't prove that what you own and the land that you live on and that is yours was through the lineage of your ancestors, then you couldn't own the land. And so there were a number of people, Ezra tells us this, in the book of Ezra, there were a number of people who actually lost their land because when they got back from Babylonian captivity, they couldn't find their genealogies. It was a huge deal. It would have been a huge, massive deal to Jewish readers that Jesus could point to Abraham and to David as being in their direct line. Because they knew knowing the Old Testament scriptures as they did, they knew that the Messiah, the long promised, the one that they've been waiting on for so long, they knew that this Messiah could only come from the line of Abraham and the line of David. So naturally, where does Matthew start? 
with Abraham and with David. I like the way that uh, one commentator, a guy named uh, John Philip says, says it. He says this, the, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What an unusual and to our minds, uninteresting way to begin a book. Did Matthew know nothing of psychology? Did he not know that a writer must capture the attention of his readers in the first few lines? Well, of course he did. And that is why he began this way. Matthew arrested his audience at once by saying, in effect, here is Jesus's pedigree. He was your king, Jews. He was your king. And you will have no other king. The royal line comes to an end in him. In other words, the subtext, reading between the lines, as it were, of Matthew 1, 1 through 16, is Matthew actually inviting his Jewish audience, and now us, into the question, here's his genealogy, here's, here's the, the, the thing, the one, the, the promised one that you've been waiting on, Will you see and believe that he's the one, the long-awaited Savior? That's the question really being posed to us from this passage this morning. We're going to be in this passage this week, next week, and two weeks from now. We're going to just walk through these 16 verses today. I'm pretty much hanging out in the very first verse. But we're going to walk through these verses, and we're going to keep asking that question. Do you see and believe? That's what Matthew's inviting this original audience into. And as he's doing that, clearly from what we can read in verse one, he's pulling two primary threads. The two threads he's pulling are, uh, one, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of the covenant of Abraham. It's the first thread. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of the covenant of, covenant of Abraham. The second thread he's pulling that we'll look at next week is Jesus is the promise of a king like David. Jesus is the promise of a king like David. So for this morning, we're going to focus on that he's the fulfillment of the promise of the covenant with Abraham. So naturally, we, in order to do that, we've, we've got to go back to the story of Abraham. We did this a lot in the Ten Commandments, by the way, especially the second half of the Ten Commandments series here recently. We're to really get context and understanding to what's happening in the Ten Commandments even and what's happening at the heart level for us today is to go back to the very beginning of the story. You know, a lot of times we, we miss the greater context of the story. Sometimes we can get so fixed in on a passage or even a verse in the Bible, which can be a really good thing, obviously, but sometimes we can get so zoomed in on that that we, we actually don't take steps back to look at the whole picture and go, oh, okay, I see what's happening now. It's, it's kind of like, even though I'm not a Star Wars fan necessarily, don't judge me, my son is, he's, he's watched every single one of them, including the ones that are a bit of the, the side trails with Solo and Skywalker and those kind of things. Um, I've seen some of them, again, don't judge me, but just imagine if you, if you are one who knew the whole story, and, and yet, you were talking to someone who had only watched Empire, the Strike, Empire Strikes Back. And this person talking about The Empire Strikes Back loves this movie, goes, yeah, it was a great movie, and this, and this, and this, but they don't understand the greater context. And you, knowing all 28 movies or whatever it is now, 
you go, well, actually that fits here and it's all about these and whatever the prequels were called and this and that. And, and you, you start going, oh, well, okay. I didn't know there was that much to it. Well, similarly, we can do that with God's word. We can zoom in on certain passages and verses and glean a lot from them and go, that's really good for me. But then sometimes there's a bit of an epiphany, a bit of a, oh, wow, I, didn't, I don't know that I realized that when we look at the whole context of what God's doing, the story that he's writing. Jo uh, uh, John Lucas, is that his name that wrote Star Wars? George, yeah, there we go. So I told you I wasn't a fan. I like to call him John, okay? Um, it's people that know him personally that we call him John, okay? So George Lucas, right? He's writing this grand narrative that if you only watch one movie, you're gonna miss. Well, the same with God. He's writing a grand narrative that if we only know a little bit of the story, we're, we're gonna miss the greater context. And so we have to go back to the beginning. And so in doing so, when I say the beginning, I mean almost the very beginning, where what we see, I'm gonna give you four things that are just observations that help us with the story of Abraham leading us to Jesus, is that in Genesis three, sin is minutes old. I mean, just, just minutes old, and God makes a very early proclamation. He makes a very early proclamation. And here's the proclamation. It's in the context of Adam and Eve have bought the lie. They've, they've bought the lie that Satan, the serpent, gave to them. That God is holding something back from you. That he's really not for you. That despite, he, this, despite the fact that he's given you uh, 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 presumably a, a limitless number of trees in the most beautiful thing we could ever imagine and fruit abounds, there is this one that he's holding back from you, which means he's not for you. Which, by the way, we still believe that lie today. God blesses us and gives us and has granted this and that and whatever, and we get fixated on the one thing he's holding back for us, not even realizing that his holding back is for our good. And so Adam and Eve buy the lie and they take the fruit and sin enters into the world and chaos ensues and the brokenness ensues and the marred and the fractured heart ensues and the marred and the fractured world ensues. And everything begins to fall apart. Adam and, uh, Adam and Eve immediately recognize their shame and they go and hide and then they go into blaming, blaming each other, blaming God. And then God begins to speak, and as a just and holy God, he appropriately has to pronounce a curse and judgment upon the serpent, the woman, and the man. And as he does that, he does something profound. In the midst of his pronouncement of the curse, he makes a promise. He's actually cursing at this point, he's cursing the serpent. And in verse 15 of chapter 3, he says to the serpent, to Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, a critical theme in the Old Testament, offspring, that we're picking up now in Matthew 1. Between your offspring and her offspring. And then he says this to the serpent. He says, he will crush your head. You will strike his heel. In other words, you're going to think you've won, Satan. In fact, Satan, you think you've won today. 
You've duped Adam and Eve into believing your lies and you've uh, brought destruction to my creation and to them and their hearts and so forth. And so you, you are gonna think that you've won today, you already do, and then you're actually going to think that you've really won on that day that Jesus hangs on the cross, striking his heel, so to speak. But God, even as sin is minutes old, he declares, he proclaims to Satan and to the whole world, I'm going to make you a promise. This offspring, this one that you'll strike the heel of, he's going to crush your head. Satan knows from day one, don't be mistaken, he knows that he will lose. He knows it. How beautiful of God. How kind of the Lord. This is not plan B, by the way. This was not the Lord going, oh my goodness, the serpent has messed up everything that I had planned. And what do we do now? In a a mysterious way that we can't fully understand, this whole uh, serpent-crushing Savior was a part of the plan from the very beginning. This was God's, is God's plan. That there would be one who would come as an offspring first of Eve, but then we'll get to Abraham in a moment, who would crush the head of the serpent. Now, you can imagine that understandably, they don't know, Eve doesn't know, Adam doesn't know uh, the timing of this. It would only be natural to begin to think that, well, once we start having children, one of those is going to be the serpent crusher. I mean, you and I would do that. Well, God made the promise that from my offspring, the serpent's head's going to be crushed. And immediately they know what we've done and how horrible it is. And when is this serpent going to be crushed? Is it... And so they have Cain, and they have Abel, and they have Seth. And don't you know, with each one of them, they were thinking, uh, is this the one? Is is this the one who will crush the head of the serpent? And with each one, they're disappointed. And with each one that's not him, maybe perhaps a little bit of hope is lost. And then you get all the way down to the story that we're introduced to in Genesis chapter 12 of Abram, who becomes known as Abraham. And he's the most unlikely of people to be the the serpent crusher because he's from Ur. He's not even a follower of God. He doesn't believe in God. He's a pagan worshiper from a foreign land. And God calls him out of this foreign land. And he says, I'm going to give you this new land. And in the process, Abraham becomes a follower of Yahweh, God. And in so doing, God makes an unlikely promise. He made a very early proclamation that was stunning, and now he makes a very unlikely promise that's stunning. In Genesis chapter 12, he tells Abraham something profound. He says this, verse 1. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And here it is. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, it's not the exact same language, but don't you think that at some level, anybody that's paying attention at that time, perhaps they recognize, oh, this is the one. He's here. That's not who I thought it would be. It's this dude from Ur. But he's, I mean, he's, He's going to be the blessing of all nations. But then if you start watching the story unfold, it becomes clear. No, no, no. It's not Abraham who's the serpent crusher. It's going to be one of his offspring. 
Through you, through your seed, all nations will be blessed. And so it becomes, well, is it Isaac? Well, is it Jacob? Well, is it Ephraim? Is it Benjamin? Is it Joseph? Is it, yeah, and so on and so on. Who is it? When is he going to come? And the course of history happens, and God's timing is not ours. A thousand years is to him is a day, and a day a thousand years. And slowly but surely, hope wanes. Who is the head crusher of the serpent? Why has he not come yet? These are the questions being asked. So much so that by the time he does show up, they don't recognize him. They don't see him. So what's Matthew up to? Matthew, in these first 16 verses, is trying to help his Jewish audience see, guys, you missed him. He is your king. There is no other king coming. The serpent crusher you've been waiting on for all these centuries, he came. He did his work, and he's now sitting at the right hand of the Father. Will you see and believe? But if that weren't enough, God does something even more extraordinary a few more chapters, a few chapters later. In Genesis 15, after having in Genesis 3 made a, an early proclamation and then in Genesis 12 making an unlikely promise, Genesis 15 with Abram, Abraham, he makes an astonishing covenant. I mean, let me read to you just what happens here, just parts of it. You can read it all in Genesis 15, but here's a little segment of it. In verse 9, God said to Abram, he said, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he, Abram, brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And you may be sitting there going, okay, what? You're going, to have to, you're going to have to explain this one to me. All right, here's, here's what's happening. God has made a promise that, to Abram. He said, through you, meaning all the nations will be blessed, it'll be through your offspring. There is one coming. He'll be from the line of you, Abraham. And then to ensure that God is saying that what he's saying is true, he enters into a covenant with Abraham. And he does it in the most contextually appropriate way as to that time. Now, for you and I today, if we're going to enter into a covenant or even a contract with someone, we're going to sign a piece of paper, shake on it. And our name, our signature is the binding piece there. They didn't do that in the ancient Near Middle East. What they did was a bit more dramatic. What they would do is this. Imagine that there's a plot of land and you and your neighbor 
uh, down the way are going to own this land together, but you're going to own part of the land and he's going to own part of the land. And you're going to have an agreement that you will never move upon his part of the land and try to take it from him and vice versa. And so with that, you enter into covenant with, with one another. And what you do is exactly what happens here is you take animals and you cut the animals into two pieces and you put half of the animals on one side and you put half the animals on the other side and you pour their blood in between. And then together, perhaps even locking arms or at least at the same time, you walk between these animal carcasses with blood to signify and to say, if I don't keep my side of this covenant, you have permission to do unto me what we have done to these animals. You can rip me apart. Now, I have a feeling that if we still did it this way, a lot of contracts wouldn't be broken and a lot of covenants. Maybe we should bring this back. I'm joking. No, we shouldn't. But they took it seriously, right? You can do unto me what we have done to these animals. So, but what's God up to? Because what did he do to Abram? Abram didn't walk through. If you remember what it said, it said that he put, right at dusk, because it was getting dark, he put Abram off to the side and put him into a dark, deep sleep, such that he didn't even know that what was going on. And then in the form of a smoking pot, symbolically, God himself passed between the ripped apart animals. What's he doing? What's he saying? He's saying this. God is signifying in that moment to Abram and to the people of God. He's saying this, you will not keep your side of the covenant. You just won't. You're sinful. You'll give in to sinful desires. You'll forsake me. You'll run from me. You'll run to other gods and other lovers and other, other idols. And you will not be faithful. And so that's why you're not, I'm not even giving you the choice to even volitionally walk through this because you won't keep your bargain. But... I will. I'm the covenant keeper. I'm the promise keeper. I am the faithful one. And in all the ways that you will be faithless, I will be faithful. So I'm the only one that's going to walk through. But that's not all he's saying because he's foreshadowing something even more glorious. What's he foreshadowing? He's pointing to the cross. He's pointing to this covenant, signifying and pointing to an even greater, full covenant through not the blood of animals, but the blood of Jesus. And what's true of us? What's true of us? What We sit over on the side, so to speak. There is nothing that we do to walk down that aisle, so to speak, with the Lord such that we're entering into covenant together. He does all the work. We can't achieve our way or even covenant our way into the presence of God. God is the one who walks between the animals. And what is he saying in doing this in Genesis 15? What is he foreshadowing? He's saying this, even though you're the covenant breaker, people of Abram, that's us. Even though you are covenant breakers and I am the only covenant keeper, I will actually be the one ripped apart, not you. You will rip me apart. You will tear my flesh apart. I will spill out my blood so that you can actually be in this covenant. He's foreshadowing the cross. It's the gospel in Genesis 15. He's pointing us to something greater, even here. 
And so how do we participate in that? What, what is it that we even get to participate in? If, we're, if we are like Abram over here on the side in a deep, sinful sleep, so to speak, such that we can't do anything, and God does all the work, is there anything that is required of us to enter into this covenant through the blood of Jesus? And the answer is yes, it's called faith. And with that faith comes an imputed righteousness. You go, imputed, oh my goodness, that's a word that only Presbyterians use. Yeah, okay, so it is a fancy word, but it's a significant word that I want you to know because it means so much. I want you to think of imputed from the standpoint of you getting credited with something as if it were yours, but it's not. And vice versa, Jesus being credited with something that is not his, but it's credited to him as, as though it were. Because what does is, what is Abraham also model for us? He, he models for us in, John, in, in, uh, in uh, Genesis 15, verse 6, what this faith looks like. In verse 6 of Genesis 15, he says this, and he believed the Lord... And he, that's God, counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord. What did he believe? Well, he believed the promise of God. And what was the promise? Well, the immediate promise in the context of the passage is that God's going to give him this land that he's now standing on. He took him out of this foreign land, this pagan land of Ur, and now he's standing in Canaan that would become the promised land. And he says, it's going to be your people that inherit this land. And that's the immediate promise that Abraham believes. But there's a bigger, broader context in the promise, which is to say this. Remember Genesis, remember Genesis 3, Abram? Remember Genesis 12? Remember what I told you earlier, Abram? There's one coming. There's one, this, the serpent crusher is coming, and it's going to be through your line. And he believed him. In other words, salvation has always been, Old Testament and New Testament, has always been by faith alone. Some people mistakenly believe that in the Old Testament it was by works, and now in the New Testament it's by grace through faith. It's always been by grace through faith. It's always been through the mechanism of faith to believe in the promise of what God and only God can do and will do and has done now. And so Abram believed God. He believed that God was promising the Messiah that will come. Or who are we now? We are people that just like Abram, modeling him in his faith, we believe the promise as well, but not the promise of who will come, but who has come. And now we know his name to be Jesus, the one who is in the line of Abraham. This imputed righteousness is profoundly good and overwhelmingly amazing to us when we begin to chew on it, when we begin to sit in it and understand that because of Jesus, because of Jesus being willing to be ripped apart for my sake, to be forsaken for my sake, because of this Jesus, I get to uh, not just not be ripped apart, but to enter in and when Jesus, when God looks at me now, he sees Jesus. And what is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. So if you're a follower of Christ such that you have believed upon him, when God looks at you, 
This imputed righteousness concept, it means that he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And he says, I got no issue with you. Your sin has been dealt with. Why? Because where is your sin gone? It's been credited to Jesus as, as if it were his. Just as his righteousness has been credited to you as if it were yours. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange that we get. How? Through our morality? No. By our obedience? No. By how faithful we are in the church? Mm -mm. We receive it through faith. Through the one who is ripped apart for us. Some might say, well, that seems too easy, and goodness, I mean, if, you, if that's all it is, then yeah, okay, I'll believe, and then I'll just live however I want to and know that my eternal destiny is set. Well, that's, that's not how it works. Because what happens when we believe upon this Jesus, when, when our faith is in him and his righteousness has been credited to us, that's just our standing before God. That's just our position before God, but our condition begins to change. Why? Because when we believe by faith upon this Jesus, who is the line of Abraham, he changes us from the inside out. His spirit dwells within us, and he begins to change our hearts throughout the course of our lives. Such, such that this Jesus that we wanted to maybe initially presume upon his kindness and abuse his grace, we go, oh, I don't want to do that. Why? Because we love this Christ who would do such a thing for us. And he turns our hearts. He makes us new creations, as 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says. And we begin to actually desire, not perfectly, we still struggle with sin, but we increasingly so begin to desire to walk with this Jesus who would do such a thing for us as this. So as we come to Matthew 1, what seems as though uh, a verse that means nothing, at least at first glance, carries with it so much that would have meant a great deal to these Jewish believers. Now, here's the question. What does it have to do in my everyday life now? You, you might be sitting there going, okay, that, that was a lot there, a lot, of, you know, a lot of theology, a lot of doctrine, a lot of head stuff. Okay, I mean, I think I'm following you and what's going on there. Uh, but, you know, how, what, does this, what does this have to do with tomorrow? How does this affect me on Monday? Well, let me, let me give you a few thoughts. One of the things that, um, that could be a great practice to implement, and maybe even to the extent that you set, your, set an alarm on your phone to go off two, three times a day to do this, but in the midst of the chaos, especially, I mean, the chaos of life in general, but especially the chaos of this season, which you might carry a lot of guilt and shame as a Christian in December because a lot of times we feel as though, well, I know I'm supposed to be thinking about Jesus more than usual because it's his birth and all, but I'm actually thinking about him less because of everything that's going on and I can't keep up. And then you feel, feel guilty and shame and you, and you don't even go to the Lord because you're just like, oh, I should be a better Christian, right? We feel that. And so here's something very simple that we can begin to do that, that helps us in this, even coming from this text, and that's this. Set a couple of alarms during the course of the day that are just quick little, this can be 30 seconds, one minute, whatever, just a quick little reminder to just pause in the midst of the chaos and go and do this. God, thank you. Thank you that thousands upon thousands of years ago, you made a promise. 
You made a promise and you have, you have made good on that promise. You promised that there would be a head crusher who would come. You promised that the serpent's head would be crushed by a, a most unlikely of offspring. And you've shown us faithfully that, that that person was not this one and not this one and not this one and not this one. But now through the line of Abraham, it's this one and we know his name to be Jesus. I thank you, oh God, that when you made that promise thousands upon thousands of years ago, you had me in mind. You were thinking of rescuing me from my sin. And so in the midst of the chaos, Lord, I just wanna say thank you. I'm, I'm gonna go back to Excel spreadsheets now. I'm gonna go back to wiping butts now, but thank you, Lord. Thank you that you were the covenant keeping God. Thank you that you ripped yourself apart so that I could be clean and whole and new and be a child of God. So that's one thing. Another thing is just pay attention throughout the day and be amazed by the gospel. Pay attention. Here's what I mean. Do things like this. It's 1140. Oh God, there's, there's so many things already that I have, I mean, just, just even before noon that I have not followed you faithfully in. I followed you so imperfectly, not yesterday, not tomorrow, just even this morning. <laughs> Thank you that in all of my stumbling and all of my inability and all of the ways that I just can't get it right, you look at me right now, God, and you see me as righteous. You see Jesus. You're not mad at me. You're not disappointed in me. You're not ready to shame me. You're not ready to smite me. You're not ready to punish me. You look at me and you see Jesus and you say, that's mine. He's mine, she's mine, she's my daughter, he's my son, I love you. Why? Because of the righteousness of Jesus credited to me. And even though I am struggling in this life, Jesus, wow. You know, sometimes I get comments like, you know, the preaching at Perimeter, man, it can be so rich and so theologically dense and so doctrinally, you know, whatever. And, I, and can you give me something that's a little bit more practical? And here's my answer. Yes, I can. And sometimes we will, but it doesn't get more practical than the gospel. It doesn't. Here's why. If I wanted to give you, hey, here's 10 ways to live your best life now sermon, then here's what's gonna happen. You're either gonna convince yourself that you're doing those things and you're gonna become proud and self-righteous, or you're gonna go, I woefully failed at all 10 of those things and now I'm depressed. And so who do you need? Who do we need in our self-righteousness? Who do we need in our discouragement? We need Jesus. So who are we running to day after day? What is the most practical thing we can do? Run to Jesus. Be amazed at the covenant that he ripped himself apart such that he made good on his promise and he had you in mind the whole entire time. And that he's faithful to the faithless. Every, every struggle in this life every sorrow in this life, every misplaced hope that you've had in a person who let you down, everything that discourages your heart, every longing of the soul, every cry of the heart, every single one of those things is being crushed right now at the heel of Jesus. And it will be crushed 
It's being crushed now, but what is our hope? Yes, our hope is looking back at the cross, that he is the one who came in the line of Abraham, but what is the hope to come? That the crushing that has happened through the cross will happen in full when he returns, and Satan is trembling in his shoes. I don't know if he wears shoes, but because he knows what's coming. He knows what's coming. Do you? Is your hope in the serpent crusher? The one who has come and who will come again? This time of year, there's a verse that gets quoted a lot. And there's one little part of this verse that's always confused me. It might have you as well. It says this, it's out of Isaiah. It's being prophesied about 600 years before Jesus came the first time. And it says this, for, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And here's the part that always made me kind of do a dog head turn. You know, like, huh? Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. You know, I can get the, you know, I see how Jesus, the Wonderful Counselor, and Mighty God, and Prince of Peace. Everlasting Father. Wait, hold on. I thought he was the Son of God. How is he our Everlasting Father? Studying this this week, it just finally clicked. It's like, oh. This is a nod to the Abrahamic line. Because who was Abraham? Abraham, remember Genesis 12? It's you, the father of multitudes, of many nations. Through you, your seed, all nations will be blessed. But that fatherhood, if you will, of Abraham was temporary. It wasn't eternal. What did Jesus say when he came? Remember what he said to those that were ready to stone him because they hated him so much? Remember this from John 8? Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's our everlasting father because he's the true and better Abraham. He's not the temporary father of nations. He is the eternal father of nations. And in him and in him alone is our everlasting father. We are blessed. Father, help us. Help us to believe just as Matthew was trying to help his original audience to see and believe, this is the one. He is the one who has come. Lord, help us to believe. Give us eyes to see, even as we prayed at the beginning of this time together. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive. Bolster our faith. Give us faith, O oh God. And you, O oh Jesus, the righteous one, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.